Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing the explosion of Pike River Mine, a mine in the South Island of New Zealand, which exploded in 2010. It's a really tragic tale of a preventable tragedy that took the lives of 29 men. And to balance this out and bring a little bit of joy back, uh, we will also be discussing the rescue of 33 Chilean miners from the San Jose Copper Mine, also in 2010. Going back to the mines again this week. It's been a while, I think, since we did Abavan, which was kind of mine-related, I guess. more it, it was more the tips out of the mines, wasn't it, rather than the mines themselves. But it's, yeah, an area I find really interesting, and I've been meaning to do this episode for ages. But... I don't know, I found it really sad, but now I've kind of balanced it out, so I feel a bit better about it. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and I finally remembered to put something in my script to remind me at the beginning of the episode to say thank you for listening um, and to please subscribe and uh, follow the podcast. Um, I'd love to have you follow over on Instagram. I'm doing a lot of bits and bobs over there. Um, it's at when it goes wrong pod over there. So I would love to chat to you. Okay, so let's get into it, and we're going to start with Pike River. Pike River Mine is located near Greymouth in the west side of the South Island in New Zealand. So this is a case which, if you're from New Zealand, will be very, very familiar, uh, but probably not that familiar for people elsewhere. And New Zealand isn't a really big mining company, uh, mining company, mining country. Uh, it does have a few mines, but the mining industry really took a took a dive uh, in in recent times, similar to the UK. Uh, and and yeah, there's there's not that many around. And so this mine, Pike River, was one of the only new mines in New Zealand for a very long time. And the area where Pike River was going to be was, um, it, it kind of been known as like a potential spot to mine coal for quite some time. And they had, uh, they'd kind of scouted this location in the 90s and the early 2000s. And they knew there was like a valuable seam of coal underneath the area where it was. But it was always in like quite a tricky location and and the the thought always was was can we really like set up a mine in this in this hard location and make profit out of it uh, because yes there might be valuable coal under there but if it costs loads of money to set up is it actually worth doing and this was kind of debated back and forth for a long time Eventually, it was decided that even though it would take a lot of money to turn it into a functional mine, it would hopefully produce a huge amount of coal and the coal it would produce would be very high quality. And so it was decided that it might be worthwhile. So in 2004, uh, the Pike River Mine Company was set up uh, as part of a subsidiary from a larger company uh, and they were authorised to start building the mine. And this company was eventually led by a man called Peter Whittle. And they basically yeah, made this this argument that the quality of the coal was going to be really high and so therefore it could sell for lots of money. So therefore it was worth developing. But whether that is true, whether the coal actually was of the quality that they expected is, is still debatable. Uh, when you are scoping a mine, I guess is the, the term. Uh, they they did 14 boreholes. So they, they kind of drilled into the rock 14 times to take a sample of, of what was under there. And, and some of these were positive boreholes, but there just really wasn't enough in reality at this beginning time to actually know the quantity and the quality of the coal that was down there. 
and a lot of people wanted to do more drilling and more boreholes but these were these were kind of denied so they just went ahead they they assumed that yes everything was perfect down there and that they would uh, just start start building this mine and then start getting the coal out uh, and the area where this is in the South Island is, if you've been there, you'll know that it's very uh, rural and it's very an area of, of a lot of conservation. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, local bush around there and there were a lot of conservation charities at the time which were really not very happy about the plans uh, and were not yeah, happy that, that that bit of area was being developed. Because of this... Not, not not as a bad thing, but basically what this meant was as the mine was developed, they tried as hard as possible to not disrupt the kind of surrounding ecosystem. So, for example, they originally wanted four escape shafts, but they ended up not doing that because they didn't want to disrupt the bush. Uh, some of the uh, ventilation shafts were very far away and they didn't build roads to them. They left them where they were and they would use helicopters to go and fly to them because they didn't want to disrupt the natural area, which is an excellent idea um, and one that is really important and should 100% be done uh, if you are building a gold mine. But it did lead to some issues later on, which we'll talk about. So after construction started in 2004, they did build one road which went to uh, the bottom of the mine, but it really, the, the development of the mine was really plagued by setbacks. So the, the company that was building it was, was a very new mining company and they did get a lot of experts in from Australia, which um, has a very big mining industry uh, and from other places as well. But they didn't really have, Australia doesn't do a lot of coal, so they didn't really have specific coal experts um, much coming over. And because coal mines work so differently to other mines because of the uh, amount of gases and, and other dangerous things that, that happen when, when dealing with coal, they kind of just didn't really have the expertise that, that you would expect or that they would need really in order to build a really effective and safe mine. But they but they, they tried their best and they continued to build the mine and they uh, were really trying to use like new technology to make efficiencies, but this was rarely successful um, and, and often broke down. And so, yeah, it was just a bit of a disaster really when they were trying to actually build this mine. Uh, the mine itself was basically entered by a two a long two-kilometre sloping tunnel. So there was a sloping tunnel that went down to the entrance of the mine, which and then at the end of the tunnel, it broke off into, into lots of different shafts, lots of different tunnels. Uh, they were all quite complex. One, bits of, one bit of it was known as Spaghetti Junction because there were so many different, different routes coming off it. But the thing is, is that the mine took way longer than they were expecting. And that was for, for a multitude of reasons. Like I said, the, the skill levels of the, of the people involved, the technology, the location, which was really hard to use. But they also just didn't have great knowledge of, of what was actually underground. So the rock was much harder than they expected. And yeah, it just wasn't wasn't great. So originally, they thought that development would take a couple of years. But it was constantly delayed. Uh, and it ended up actually taking four years before the mine was operational and able to be up and running. And it was formally opened in 2008. But even then, when it was finally opened in 2008, it was in this like weird phase of kind of being operational and they were getting some coal out. But at the same time, they were still developing a lot of the rest of the mine uh, and they were still putting in a lot of safety features and a lot of other features, which you would have expected to be there when they actually did launch. 
And so, yeah, it took, even from, even though it opened in 2008, it took probably another couple of years before it became really fully functional. Uh, and this, what all this meant was basically is that Pike River was constantly over-promising and under-delivering to its shareholders. So they were con- consistently having to go back, ask for more money for the mine. The owners of the mine were just desperate to get good coal out and they were desperate to start selling that and exporting it and showing that the mine was was eventually going to be profitable after this kind of disastrous startup. development of the mine, there was a lot of debate on things like escape routes, uh, refuge areas, and the management of ventilation in the mine. And ventilation is very important uh, in a mine, as you would expect. And obviously, escape routes and and refuge areas are also very important, but they're pretty self-explanatory. But ventilation is really hard to manage. And Basically, when coal forms, alongside that, a lot of natural gas forms. And as you mine coal, it releases a lot of gases. And some of these include methane. And methane, when it's at a certain percentage mixed with other gases, so oxygen from the surface, for example, then it is very easy to ignite and very easy to explode. And so it's really important to manage, remove this gas uh, and ensure that the ventilation is working as planned. And so they usually use lots of what are called ventilation shafts, and these are small tunnels that are, are dug up to the surface and allow the the gas to be be released, basically. And they usually use fans on the surface to help pull that gas out and to and to provide adequate ventilation. But Pike River really didn't do very well with their ventilation at all. So they eventually did build a ventilation shaft, but the fan that is normally at the end, they actually ended up putting the fan in the mine itself, which is really rare and this has never happened anywhere else. And so the reason why it was actually approved and done is, is very questionable. But it was thought that it was it was too much of a pain to kind of put it anywhere else. So they put it in the mine itself and kind of hoped that it would blow <laughs> the methane away. And there were a lot of people that disagreed with this, but it, it went ahead anyway. And they also determined that the ventilation shaft, which is which is common, would also double up as an emergency exit. And they put a ladder in the ventilation shaft as well. But it was a very tight fit um, in terms of, of whether anyone could actually successfully climb out of it. And it wasn't really tested, anything like that. Basically, they were just desperate to get mining. So even with all these issues with ventilation and fans and everything like that, they just went ahead and started work. And once they started work, methane was a huge problem at Pike. They constantly monitored the methane levels, but only within the mine itself. They didn't didn't monitor them remotely. And uh, the the aim usually is to try and keep methane levels under 1%. But Pike was known as a gassy mine, which is always fun. Um, And so it it just some some coal seams just naturally seem to produce a lot more gas than others and and pike was one of these and so it regularly went above this 1% methane level and it was 
and, and it was just well known. So in the run up to the explosion, it was flagged 21 times that methane levels were too high and nothing was done about the reports. And this is what I find so frustrating about all of Pike River is the ability for it to not have happened if the appropriate health and safety measures were done and if warnings like this had actually been heeded by management and there wasn't this push to kind of continually make profit it's such a preventable tragedy but yeah so it was like 21 times that the gas was too high and that that was a really big risk of explosion and there was a lot of other risks that were flagged as well. There was a, an electrical supply system that, that fed the mine and that was located in a very gassy area and that potentially could provide an ignition source. And they, the fact that the mine was being built whilst it was also producing, that, that really held a lot of risk and really was one of the contributing factors. And there just didn't seem to be up until the explosion a lot of focus on health and safety but also not a lot of kind of mitigating issues or mitigating things done so such as putting in more ventilation shafts even if not a full ventilation shaft uh, they would usually do boreholes which would help to release the methane but none of these were, were done running up to the event. And so Pike also struggled really with its staff uh, and with keeping senior and experienced miners and managers. A lot of the the senior and experienced people really didn't agree with how the mine was being run and this led to quite a high turnover of people there's there's quite a few stories of people that would join for like a month and then be like I'm not working in this mine uh, I'm not being listened to and what that meant is obviously as more senior people left it left a lot more inexperienced miners behind and the location where where the mine is in New Zealand is an area that is quite low on industry and so the mine was a very exciting thing because it was giving a lot of jobs and, and, and things back to the economy so there was always quite a willing supply of people to go and work in the mine but generally those people were inexperienced and hadn't worked in mines before but they were really struggling to keep the experienced miners who might have moved from overseas uh, staying and working at the mine. And yeah, through all of this, the managers uh, were really just trying to push profits. They just needed to get coal out and they needed to get coal out fast. Uh, and what this also meant was that on the on the day of the incident, there were quite a lot of men underground and more men underground than you would expect at a mine of this size and this point in its development. But they were so far behind schedule, the, the development had run over by however many years and they were just really pushing, get people down there, get coal out. And then just a quick note on regulators. So if you are aware, after Abvan, uh, we talked about it in that episode, regulation became a lot bigger in terms of, of mining and, and coal mining especially. And the mines were regulated by different pe different bodies in New Zealand, but they just weren't hugely specialised in, in mines. So uh, like I said, there, there weren't that many mines in New Zealand at the time. So uh, none of the regulators did the kind of really thorough checks that maybe we would expect. So uh, they didn't check things like the ventilation, the health and safety reporting uh, or other issues. And yeah, it was more like they did kind of cursory checks of regulation, but they didn't really look into the details of the mine and how the mine was actually being run. 
I feel like if you um, count up the number of times I've said mine in this episode, uh, it will be very high, but I don't, I don't have a good synonym, so forgive me. <laughs> um, anyway, let's get into the details of the actual day. So on the 19th of November 2010, uh, work down in the mine continued as planned and there were 31 men underground and they had this like board where they would basically move their tag across to show if they were in the mine or not. Uh, they also had an electronic system, but this, this tag board was used more consistency. And of those 31 men that were in the mine, they didn't, they didn't know that methane was obviously building up. And we don't really know exactly what happened, uh, as we'll hear later. We haven't been back into the mine. Uh, and so we we aren't sure where the gas might have been, but it's assumed that basically uh, the gas could concentrate in like a void behind where they were mining if, if that had been left. And if it was in a location like that, then it probably wouldn't have prompted any of the underground alarms that they had. Uh, and the fact that they had inadequate ventilation did mean that these gas levels were just getting higher and higher. And again, we don't actually know what caused the the gas to ignite and cause the explosion, but something did ignite the methane and a huge explosion erupted. Uh, the explosion, it was, yeah, it was very, very long and powerful. There's a few theories as to what could have caused the explosion. Uh, it could have come, there was a lot of electrical equipment underground, um, which could have uh, caused that initial spark. Uh, but it could also have been from something like a roof collapse that then uh, the pressure then, then uh, ignites the gas. And so the mine exploded. The explosion lasted 52 seconds and it was catastrophically powerful. But it was a bit of an odd scenario because uh, where the mine was, it, it had a, an above ground control center, but that was quite far away from where the mine was actually situated and, and because of the long tunnel. What happened when the mine exploded, they didn't really know what, what had gone on. So the man, there was a man in the control room and he was actually trying to ring down at exactly the time of the explosion to contact someone. And he kept ringing down, wouldn't connect, no one would respond. And, and it was just this really odd scenario and they, they weren't really sure what happened. So at first there were a few options that may have may have occurred. So he thought it might have just been an electrical failure, which is why uh, they weren't able to connect to the phones down there. He alerted some others to the fact that the, the mine had gone um, offline and they, they couldn't contact them. And after a few minutes, he suggested should they put the mine rescue service on standby. But the, the senior managers at the time decided, no, uh, someone needed to go and just check out the mine instead and see what was happening. So from the control room, they rang an electrician who was closer to the mine and he was sent to investigate. And as he got closer and closer to the mine entrance, he suddenly found it very hard to breathe. The air was really bad. Uh, and he eventually saw a man who was lying on the ground, collapsed outside the entrance. And he was positioned in such a way that he was kind of thrown back. And so he, he thought that it, it was clear that an explosion had happened. The electrician ran back uh, to alert the control room uh, and tell them that an explosion had indeed happened. So this was about 3, 3.30, I think, was the initial explosion. Uh, and so they, soon after that, four o'clock, figured out that that was the case. Uh, and, and they then called all of the 
many uh, uh, rescue services and, and police and ambulances and all of that type of thing. The next action that they took to confirm uh, that an explosion had indeed happened was that they flew, like I said, the ventilation shaft they couldn't walk to. They had to fly to it. So they got a helicopter and they flew up to where the ventilation shaft was and they could see huge amounts of smoke coming out of the ventilation shaft and also a lot of debris. uh, And they knew for sure that, that an explosion had indeed happened. But the question now was what what happens next? What where did they go from here? Like I said, there were 31 men underground, but after almost two hours after the explosion, two men actually walked out of the mine. Both of them had been in the tunnel itself. Uh, So one of them, Mr. Smith, had been running late and so hadn't made it back down to the bottom of the mine with his shift. He He was on his way. Uh, and one was working on a piece of equipment in the mine itself, in the tunnel, uh, and so was working a little bit further up, and that was Daniel Rockhouse. And once the explosion happened, they both kind of got knocked knocked down uh, and, and lost consciousness, but eventually uh, Daniel Rockhouse did come around, and he saw Mr. Smith and pulled him out, and they, they kind of pulled each other uh, and managed to walk out of the mine itself up through the tunnel, which was an amazing feat considering where they were and considering the kind of horrific level of gas that would have been in the tunnel at that point. As soon as they got to the top of the mine, uh, they rang the phone to confirm that they had managed to get out, uh, and they, uh, but they soon collapsed. But luckily, uh, paramedics got there very quickly, uh, and those two did thankfully survive the explosion, uh, and they could confirm what and when had it had happened. So like I said, the an incident was then declared and there was a lot of emergency services uh, called, but the police took control along with the mine rescue service to coordinate the incident. And this is where it gets a little bit confusing. And we talked about it in the White Island volcanic explosion, uh, which happened after this, uh, which was all about uh, disaster recovery and this incident management response and how, how that worked. And so the question as soon as the mine the explosion has happened was should they get into the mine and try and do a rescue and this was something that was very very hard to decide uh, whether to go in or not so because they knew that the mine had exploded they weren't and because they didn't have uh, remote monitoring of the methane levels it meant that they couldn't like check and see actually what the state of the mine was and so they didn't know if the mine was like literally about to explode you know five minutes later um or if the mine was in a stable state they just didn't know alongside this they also didn't know whether the men were alive and so whether they needed to get in there quickly um or whether they had been killed by that first explosion they the men themselves uh there were some refuge areas but they weren't very well equipped uh, and each man did have a rebreather, but that would have only given them about half an hour's worth of air. Uh, and there were also a lot of reports that these didn't work. Um, it also became clear that there was basically only two ways of escaping the mine. So up the tunnel, which those two men did, um, or up the ventilation shaft. But the ventilation shaft, as they saw when they flew over it, it had basically been turned into a, into a chimney. So just smoke and gas was just flowing out of it. So there was no way that, that the men could have climbed up and out of that ventilation shaft so they knew that anyone coming out would have to or going in would have to go through the tunnel and there was just no signs of life
Yeah. So lots and lots of debate as to whether to go in or not. And like I said, this this linked into the White Island rescue as to whether they went in or not. Uh, but eventually the rescuers did not enter the mine. And there were loads of discussions and arguments around the rescuers and, and what to do. Uh, they did come up with some kind of alternative ideas. So this was actually the first time that they sent robots in. So they tried to send bomb disposal robots uh, down the tunnel to see see the conditions and to and to uh, understand the situation. Uh, but none were successful in terms of being able to enter just because of the the kind of catastrophic conditions it was finding in terms of uh, obviously there'd been a lot of rockfall the gases the heat everything like that so those robots were not successful and there's a lot of around this time it was just it was just really badly handled especially in terms of communication to the families um, of the miners they made it seem like the chances were that the miners might be alive and so that meant that they were really pushing the rescuers to go in but a lot of the rescuers knew that it was very unlikely that the men had survived that first blast uh, several days later, they finally managed to get a borehole into the mine and sample the air, but it was clear at that point the air showed 95% methane, uh, and, and so that meant that it was very clear that none of the men would have been able to survive that first blast. The mine had been kind of relatively stable up until that for, the, for, for five days, but late on the afternoon of the 24th of November, the mine exploded again, and this was a much shorter but much more violent blast. It basically like ripped open all of the top of the ventilation shaft, really ruined um, all of the uh, equipment up there, and, and you could really see the power that was coming. Uh, you, there's also famous shots of like the big holes just like with flames coming out of them uh, because of the huge explosions and that that second blast confirmed even further uh, that that no rescue was going to happen uh, and the mine actually then continued to explode again on the 26th and on the 28th of November so it was just in a really really unstable place and so at that point, once the mine had exploded a few times, uh, the rescue turned into a body recovery mission. But the mine was just so unstable. And so what they decided to do, which is common in, in mining issues, is they decided to seal the mine. And the idea there is that you seal all the entrances, uh, pop it all back underground, uh, and that allows uh, things like fire and stuff to be put out because obviously it's it's feeding off the oxygen, which is down there. So... All the entrances were covered and inert gas was pumped into the mine to try and stabilise the gas levels. And the fact that the recovery of the men has gone on for so long, I think is why Pike River has really like stayed in the in the minds of New Zealanders because uh, even to this day, uh, the bodies have not been recovered and there have been many, many attempts to go down and do so. Uh, and yeah it, it, that's why it has been something i mean it would have it would have hit the public consciousness anyway but i think because it had because it's just gone on for so long since then that's why it's just something that yeah it's just kind of even now will will still be in the media and will still be will still be known by a lot of new zealanders and so there was then just debate for years, basically, literally since 2010. The, the debate is still going on about whether they can enter the mine. How can they enter the mine? Uh, what what are they going to find? Obviously, a couple of reasons to try and understand the cause of the explosion, but also to, yeah, like I said, to recover the, the men. 
And yeah, it just was a bit of a mess. So there's been additional rockfall uh, and the mine was eventually sold to another company uh, and they kind of stead- stated that they would try, but but then they then came out and said that it was too hard and too expensive. But in 2019 and in 2020, uh, they the government did fund a mission to try and enter the mine, uh, which is obviously very recent. And they did they did start doing quite a lot of work to to get in there, but eventually, due to safety concerns, uh, this was again called off. Really, really tragic. Um, following the explosion, the government launched a royal commission, which looked into all of the failings, especially in health and safety, uh, which led up to the event. And this did result in uh, reformed health and safety law and the creation of WorkSafe. And WorkSafe is the company that we talked about when we uh, talked about White Island. So you can kind of link these together. Uh, they were both very uh, pivotal events in, in recent history in New Zealand. There was health and safety corporate charges laid against both Pike River Coal and against Peter Whittle, uh, and eventually both of those were settled and there was an agreement to pay large sums to the families. But yeah, I've been meaning to do Pike River for so long and I think it's just because it's so... <laughs> I find the one... The the stories where it's so preventable in very recent history, I think I find those the hardest. I, I think when we talk about when we talk about things that were were a really long time ago, when we didn't have the kind of technology and stuff that we have today, uh, sometimes I can kind of, you know, you kind of understand it and it is what it is. But I think this being such a recent tragedy and one that was so preventable, but the the drive for profit and the drive for, um, yeah, to, to, to get all this coal out and make all this money meant that they they sacrificed these men to do it and i think the you know 29 men aren't going to go home and it's such a small community in that bit of new zealand as well like you just know how devastating this must have been to to that area and to to those families and i just think it's yeah it's real tragic and i think the fact that it's been going on for so long to to potentially recover them is also just another another bit which is just very hard and very sad I think in order to perk us up after that because it is very sad uh, I decided to do, and this is going to be quite long because I've already been talking for half an hour, um, I decided to also pair Pike River up with the Chilean miners accident. And though it's actually quite sad because this accident, which I'm going to talk about in which hopefully you've, I'm sure you've heard of it, where the Chilean miners get rescued, this was actually only a few months before Pike River. And I think that that meant that almost like the people at Pike River had had all this hope because the Chilean miners had gone so well. They were like, oh, it's going to be another one of them. Um, but it was not, <laughs> which I just think is really sad. But the Chilean miners is, is a very happy tale. So let's jump into that. So a few months earlier than Pike River, like I said, in August 2010, there was a 
another mine disaster. And so in Chile, at the Atacama Desert, there was a copper and gold mine. And I didn't know this, but copper mining is very big in Chile, uh, but it doesn't have a great record of health and safety. Uh, And especially in this mine, they said that the workers at the mine were actually paid 20% more than others due to the mine's poor safety record, which is not, um, not great. Uh, And the mine that they were working in was huge and very different uh, structure to to Pike River. It was basically had like this humongous large helix tunnel, which wound down deep into the earth. And you could kind of drive down these, these big tunnels deep, deep, deep down. And what happened in this case was it was actually a a rock fall or a cave-in rather than an explosion, which caused the issue. So that meant that obviously the the ground had been unstable uh, and then it it cracked. And what happened is like a huge 700,000 tonne rock had basically come off and then had crashed down through the tunnels and trapped the men. And so once they realised that this had happened and that uh, there'd been this kind of catastrophic accident, uh, they they checked to see who was in the mine and who had managed to make it out. And it was clear that a group of 33 men had been declared lost and their search for them began. And the men were actually all fine. They did did very well, but they were actually trapped right at the bottom of the mine. Uh, And they were quite close to a refuge shelter, which thankfully in this case was a lot better than the ones in Pike River, uh, which had uh, lots of, lots of, it had some food, it had medical equipment, that type of thing. So they had found this refuge area and had yeah made made a little home there uh, whilst they were waiting uh, but then eventually they did realize they had some long tunnels off of that refuge area as well which which they could walk up and down where they had been trapped there were escape ventilation shafts uh, but the ventilation shafts in this case uh, hadn't been equipped with ladders and so they wouldn't weren't able to actually use them in order to exit the mine And basically for two weeks, the rescuers searched trying to find the men and where they were. And this was very different to the Pike River search, obviously, as as because it was a cave-in, there was danger from the fact there was instability in the rock, but there were no concerns with gas and more explosions. But there was actually another collapse quite soon after. And so what they decided to do when they were searching was they basically decided to to drill lots of like little holes down into all the different refuge areas to see if they could find them. And so they started drilling down to the higher, the higher ones and then lower and lower and lower. Uh, and eventually, once they got close to the 2,200 foot down refuge area, they could start to detect taps. And eventually they pulled up one of the drills and it took kind of hours for the drill to to be pulled back. And what they found at the end of the drill was that the men had attached a note. uh, And what it said was all 33 of us are all right in the shelter. And I saw the video of it when they like pulled it out and they saw the note on the end. And they're just so, so happy that they managed to find it and that they uh, had this confirmation that they were all fine and then actually finally found where they were. Um, And I can't imagine the relief from the men in the mine sitting there in the dark for the past like 17 days waiting to, to hear if anyone was coming to find you. And the men had, uh, yeah, they'd done really well over the 17 days. They had been rationing the food. There had been about three days worth of emergency food uh, and they were making that last more than two weeks. Uh, And they were also able to get water from from springs and radiators in the mine. So uh, they were alive, but yes, very hungry and thirsty, I think it's fair to say. 
But finding the men was just the first step. So obviously once they found them and the fact that they were all alive and well uh, was such such great news for success. But it then became uh, clear how, how we're going to actually get them out because they're so deep underground uh, and they've been and cut off by huge, huge tons and tons of rock. How are they actually going to get down? Uh, so what they did was the, the original drilled hole that they had done was very narrow, kind of the size of like a water bottle um, circumference. And so they had that little channel, which they could use to pass food and other goods to them. And uh, though originally when they first got there, they had to like, they got like NASA involved because they were basically like, how do we refeed them without making them sick? Because uh, you may or may not know if you if you don't eat for a very long time, you can die basically if you if you eat too much too quickly and so they they got advice and they uh, understood how to refeed them and get them back back to to good health and they continue to send food and stuff down there what they also did and sent down there quite early on was they sent a cctv camera down um, and a phone line uh, and so that uh, they could actually like see and talk to the men down there and see how excited they were that they had been found uh, and this also led to lots and lots of coverage of the miners uh, obviously on the tv and stuff because they could actually talk and, and be seen and, and people could understand what they were going through but the engineers now had to build a new tunnel that would go all the way down from the surface into the area that they were stuck in. And it had to be wide enough so that it could fit like this escape capsule in. So basically so someone could stand in it and then they could pull uh, the, the person up and then winch them out. But the fact that this was, like I say, so far down, just meant that it was a huge task. And so they brought in new equipment. There were basically three drills, which were all working at the same time in order to try and dig a tunnel and widen it out. Uh, one of them was uh, from Chile. One of them was the Americans came down. Some drill people in America came down with a big drill. Uh, and then also some Canadians came down with an even bigger drill uh, to see who could... Uh, get get there first and, and get them out. And this took weeks, weeks and weeks and weeks. And each of the drills really came across like lots of issues, uh, either with bits breaking, the rock was really hard. Uh, obviously, they were in the desert, so it was really hard to get water to lubricate the, the drilling process. Uh, and yeah, it, it took a very long time, which I'm sure was a very hard time uh, to keep the miners happy down there um and there are some good anecdotes anecdotes about how they tried to keep them unhappy there's they they requested cigarettes and alcohol but the doctors refused to give it to them uh, instead they sent down nicotine patches which they were not too pleased about um but they did however uh put down a long fiber optic cable and a projector so they could watch tv which I thought was quite nice, uh, kept them entertained. They watched a, a football match, a Chilean uh, national football match, uh, which they also talked on. So they, they did, did lots of things to try and keep, keep up the morale of the people down, down in, the, in the mine. But yeah, it, it was very difficult. Lots of issues with the with the drills, um, and they they kind of broke and they got fixed, and all of that that type of stuff kind of continued to happen. Uh, but finally, uh, it was thirty days later from when they started, but uh, it was about sixty six days after the um, cave in itself. One of the drills did in fact break through to the uh, area that they were in. 
And so they they actually sent men down, like rescuers down first to then like check them out and then put them back up, which I have to say I would not be the person volunteering to do that but that is very brave of them very good to to send some men down to make sure they're all right and then one by one they winched all 33 of them back up to the surface and thankfully everything went really well and in terms of getting them out and they actually got them out much quicker than they expected and the final man uh, was actually the manager of the team and i just can't imagine being the last one there um, after everyone else had been winched up just waiting for it to for it to come back down uh, and it's well worth watching if you youtube this and some of the the resources i i link as well seeing them like seeing them find the note and then seeing them like winching the men up and the men coming out uh, they're really like heartwarming heartwarming emotional scenes and uh, they're very very happy so it is if you are feeling down after some of these episodes highly recommend watching that and getting a bit of a bit of joy back in in your life um so yes th- thankfully that one did indeed have a happy ending and hopefully that will be the case for any others in the future so in terms of what we learnt then, it's going to be very similar to the Watt Island one in terms of health and safety uh, and the, I think sometimes when you work in something, health and safety can, can seem like a bit of overkill and lots of hoops and all of that type of stuff. But I think these types of incidents really show you how important it is and especially in such risky industries such as mining, uh, the need to have a real health and safety culture is so essential. Uh, It also highlights the role of a regulator and the need for more regulation with the mines of a country is indeed mining uh, and how much they should be checking up on them and making sure that the mines were safe uh, and that it was meeting all of the requirements it had. I also really think when I was when I was reading this um, and researching this, the thing that I I feel that we have learned from this is really why are we mining coal? (laughs) And I know this is the week of COP26. Yes, COP26. And this is the week of COP26. And I think it's even, so I think that makes it even more pertinent. The mining of coal is so dangerous. And not only is it horrendously dangerous, but it's such a horrible uh, contributor of pollution and a huge contributor to, to climate change. And so how, why are we still doing it? Basically, there are much safer, cleaner, greener, ways of getting coal and uh, getting coal of getting energy now i i i mean my opinion and i know that it's much much bigger than just me but i think there's a real question as to why we're still mining coal in the first place and and is it something that we should be doing and i'd love to, to know your thoughts on that and see whether you agree with me but it just i don't know doesn't make much sense to me and there has been rapid fall i was reading about kind of coal rates and stuff there has been a rapid fall of coal rates especially in the us uh, and in europe and coal does tend to be used like very heavily by like certain industries so things like the steel industry uses a lot of coal Uh, so i think it's about finding alternatives for for those types of industries and then seeing how we can uh, yeah really move to a renewable energy source across across the world uh, which may be COP26 will will help us get there. So yeah, really tragic, but then really happy. So yeah, love to hear your thoughts. Um, in terms of references then, Pike River, there are two very good references I want to highlight. First of all, there's a book called Tragedy at Pike River Mine, How and Why 29 Men Died by Rebecca Mac- McPhee. Uh, 
hugely recommend. Uh, it's a very good book. It's very good, even if you're in- if you're interested in this. Uh, you know, even if you're not from New Zealand, it's just really interesting to to hear about it in a, in a lot more detail than obviously what I've been able to go here uh, and to really understand the people involved and also uh, the I've kind of highlighted the big things that went wrong, but there was uh, a multitude of other smaller things that also went wrong uh, as part of the development of the mine. Uh, the Royal Commission, which I mentioned as well, also have, has done an output. Um, they've done uh, a very, they've got a, a website, a Park River Royal Commission website, and it has huge, uh, a huge amount of content about the before the mine, after the mine, the search, everything like that. And so if you did really want to get into the details of it, then highly recommend having a read of that. And then finally, on the Chile miner side, there is a lot of content out there for this, uh, but I very much enjoyed. Uh, there's a Buried Alive documentary, uh, Chilean miners, and I watched that on YouTube. Uh, it was about 45 minutes. <laughs> it's really worth a, a watch. Um, very, like I said, lots of heartwarming scenes on it and, and a really interesting thing. And, and yeah, seeing it all come to life, <laughs> you realise really how, how deep and how scary it must have been. So yes, highly recommend all of those. And I've already shouted out my Instagram, but I'll shout out again um, at When It Goes Wrong Pod. Uh, come over there and tell me uh, what you thought of this episode, what you think in general, uh, and, and tell me anything you would like to see in future. Uh, if you aren't on Instagram, you can also email me at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, I would love to chat to you on email as well. 